there's another quote I wrote down. It was it was like by this general William McRaven, and he gave a speech, and he said like, if you want to change the world, you must be your very best in the darkest moment. If you want to change the world, start singing when you're up to your neck in the mud, and that really changed my a lot of my perception. And so I mm-hmm. I do agree with you. I do agree that people who face injustice, people who are traumatized, people that have been beat down by society, there is a moment where that suffering is going to define the rest of your destiny. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Network State Podcast. Today we are joined by Fabrice Guerrier about Afrofuturism, imagination, vision, and creativity. Fabrice Guerrier is a Haitian-American science fiction and fantasy writer and founder of Syllable, a pioneering sci-fi and fantasy production house and publisher that creates fictional worlds by connecting diverse creative writers, visual artists, and inspired creators from different countries, backgrounds, and cultures through artist collectives. His vision is to bring a new era of storytelling in Hollywood and then the publishing world by building vibrant collectives and of underrepresented creators producing together within unique fictional universes, publishing the best original work that emerges and growing these worlds through creative collaborations, content creation, and transmedia. He was selected as a 2022 Penn Emerging Voices Fellow finalist and a Penn Haiti Fellow by Penn America. He was inducted into Forbes 30 Under 30 list and named to Root Magazine's 100 Most Influential African Americans. Fabrice, welcome to the interview. Merci, merci. (laughs) Thank you so much for uh, pronouncing my name in in French. Usually a lot of of the times it's mispronounced automatically because I like I, I appreciate that a lot and and I had I'm, a feeling yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm grateful also to be here and to talk to your listeners and have really important and meaningful conversations that I think are so critical in the times that we're living in right now it's just like I appreciate the topic as well making our societies better I think that's something that I think people are forgetting or maybe have don't necessarily believe that they can make our society better that we have this sort of idea that oh it's going to take a generation i don't believe it's going to take a generation it shouldn't take a generation it could take a day if we really believed that it to be it possible so first off in your own words can you tell us a little bit more in detail about yourself and what you're currently working on yeah absolutely i i so i grew up in port-au-prince haiti and a lot of my background there has been very much like centered around change and social change, societal change. How do we make a society better? And I think hindsight, connecting, connecting the dots backwards, I'm able to see that there is a pattern of a young boy that is hungry for understanding the nature of the universe, understanding the nature of us, our societies and the nature of humans and what allows us to like transform and engage in and actually what are the things that warm in us the qualities that we feel and when whether it's love whether it's beauty whether it's friendship whether it's care for the planet 
whether it's mutual understanding, curiosity, how do we, or at least that was my sort of pursuit, how do I create meaningful change in the world? Um, I think initially I went international relations and then I shifted very much around storytelling as like the, I, for me, the biggest, most profound way of, of like sort of upgrading people's inner operating consciousness of like, how can we inject beauty and meaning and imagination into people's perception? Um, I, I'm working on a lot of different things. I think two things I like to highlight is, so Syllable is a sci-fi and fantasy production house and publisher. So we organize diverse groups of creatives um, and in the imagined world, and we give them space, marginalized groups of creators, writers, and visual artists, digital artists who come together to imagine that a new world can be created. A new world is possible. And we give them the tools to live in that world and create in that world. And then the stories that come out of that world, Silva publishes that, that, those stories. We're really tackling this sort of classical view of writing that has so much like taken our world and I for me a lot of my theories of change is that I think the storytellers what you're doing as a storyteller and creating space with the podcast I feel like we have an extremely powerful moral duty to like create space for conversations for stories to share with people um, because I think currently we are in a meaning drought um, we have a vision drought in our planet and I can expand that more later on on what that means and why the world is the way it is, at least to my understanding. Um, but that's one thing I'm working on. I'm extremely passionate about Syllable. We're based out of LA and we're really, I'm a big, big vision person, a big thinker. And I think that Syllable can really bring like black, brown, queer women, non-binary people from different cultures to come together um to imagine through science fiction and fantasy worlds um because i think it gives us a, a unique template i think another thing i'm excited about is haitian futurism i'm a columnist for this newspaper in brooklyn called haiti observateur and a lot of what i've been thinking about is that how do we imagine a country like haiti and its rich past and its rich history and culture but also really put an emphasis on the future. How can we imagine Haitians in the future? Because oftentimes like Haiti, whenever it gets back up, there's a political conflict, there is a, an environmental crisis. So I'm, I've been defining that concept. I've been writing about it. And I've been really, I think that it's an incredible important idea, not only for Haitians and Haiti around Haitian futurism, but also for the world. Uh, for people to start to realize that the idea of futurisms, the different aspects of the future are so critical to how people situate themselves and their ability to have more purpose in their lives and their ability to dream up possibilities where resources and hardships and injustices are, are plaguing their surroundings. So I think Haitian futurism as a concept I think has a lot of threads that ties so much of what's happening on the planet. And that's something I'm really excited about. Um, I'm also a writer. I write a lot of nonfiction and uh, fiction. I've been working on a really epic novel. Um, and I want to say too much about it, but 
I, I have a goal to finish it in June 15. That's my crazy goal to finish it. Very and exciting. I've, like I've been just sitting down and just kind of writing every day, bring that. The, what they say is like writing begins at the first draft. So I'm trying to get to a first draft so I can start working on it. Uh, or actually really, really ruminating and diving mm -hmm. in the world, epic world. Um, and it, it's historical fiction. And I'll just say this, it's around the Duvalier era around the cold war it's it's there's a lot of spy it's a spy fantasy historical thriller so i'll kind of say that in a way so there's a lot of things i'm excited i always say i'm cursed by inspiration and i think that's gotten me uh that's gotten me in trouble because it's like when i'm passionate about so many things and i see beauty everywhere it's almost as if it's like you gotta be reminded of like what is that uh wall street journal book the one thing so you got to pick that one or two thing and then you got to operationalize and move forward because I do not lack motivation and purpose and excitement. I think there's a lot that we could talk about, but I, but I do feel those three things are things that I could like, we could explore a deep dive. And I know we talked about Afrofuturism too, which I think kind of is the underbelly of a lot of what's happening on the planet as well. I can connect to that. Awesome. Yeah. And I remember talking about this book when uh, we met in LA uh, almost a year ago now. Um, and uh, very, very exciting stuff. So definitely keep your ears peeled for that. Um, that's, a, that's a different one. Oh, really? So that's, this, that's a different. So I actually ended up getting an agent for that book when you came to LA. Uh -huh. And the agent now, it's, it's around like the Haitian Revolution. That's all I'll say. But the agent now is shopping it around. And I've been waiting about a year to hear back but publishing is extremely so, so because of me kind of like I don't want to wait around so I just like all right what is the highest thing I'm excited about in terms of a, a novel length 80,000 to 150,000 word length book that I can work on and I started it on the typewriter in January this is a completely new concept that's not in the same universe okay uh very interesting very good to know I want to <laughs> dive into what interested you about building better societies in general to begin with, as well as Afrofuturism. And can you just define that for everyone as well? Yeah, Afrofuturism, I would say, is, is looking at the future from a, a Black lens. From, it's, it's, the, 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 the movement of Afrofuturism is very complex and it's very nuanced and it binds so much threads across music film sci-fi fantasy science futurisms art um it really provides i think okay this is a, a lot of it is for me one of my favorite there's a lot of thinkers that i appreciate but and I, maybe we talked about that before in the past mm -hmm. but one of my favorite thinkers is frederick nietzsche mm -hmm. um he's influenced me in so many different ways in terms of my creative writing, my nonfiction, my philosophy, how I perceive societies. And I think for me, a lot of the biggest aspect of society that what's happening is like, okay, one of his big ideas is that he predicted sort of this age of nihilism that societies would enter when we don't have overarching mythologies. And I think he was specifically looking at the church because his father was a, a priest and he also had a lot of like sort of vitriolic in terms of demysticizing sort of what the church role has played in people's lives. Um, but he also was like the youngest professor and chair of the philology department in University of Basel 
and he one of his crowning his first book he wrote the birth of tragedy where he explored like the role of mythology and sort of the greek worldview and and he specifically looked at the apollonian and dionysian sort of vision and how those two gods like allowed like what was because they believed those gods to be so real and the greeks those gods provided them a meaning well that allowed them to kind of expand their minds expand their understanding of the universe also allow them to kind of like kind of navigate through that the greek society and he so he looked at he didn't look just at the like catholic church and all that stuff but he looked across the board but his theory is that when mythology when this sort of grand meta narrative that guides people's understandings of life or death or morality or 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 evil and good or sort of these big scale meaning processes that are so tied to who we are as people how we are as individuals and our agency and how we see this sort of democratic experiment to make the world more just and more passionate and more purposeful he said that when that mythology is gone we enter a space of nihilism uh, so he predicted nazism um when like when the church was replaced by the state so there was extreme toxic nationalism he, he and I think it goes even further because right now we're entering in a space where the internet, those technological forces, or even the failures of globalism and the way that it has been attempted, or even white supremacy in the sense of like this sort of the supremacy of the European sort of canon of thought of like the European centrism that the Enlightenment created so much meaning or the... Uh, the western sort of vision of the world i think has like choked out so much of like indigenous culture so much of like african culture so much of asian culture so i think what is happening in our society today is that there is a lot more depression there is a lot more sadness there is a lot more loneliness there is a lot more people that are lost and i think this meaning crisis that is in our current society is in a direct effect of being so highly connected and literally in this phone this iphone i can literally call anyone from around the world with a click of a button it might cost me but like i could learn an entire thing like i, I have access to so much knowledge but it's like it's the, this sort of famous quote that we're flooded by information but we're starving for wisdom so I feel like mythology pr provides sort of a wisdom well that has dried up. And inside of us, I think when people are lacking of purpose, lacking of meaning, and are filled with pain, and are choking because the world is operating system is so transactional and so devoid of magic, I think that we have a problem <laughs> we have a, a freaking problem <laughs> and i feel like for me what excites me about afrofuturism is that specifically looking from a uh the black context is that like people like for example african americans um african americans have the lowest income bracket out of every demographics in the entire the us and it's not predicted to increase at all in the next 30 years 
And a lot of this is due to the legacies wow. of the past. Um, it's, do, it's done to the legacy of the past. And I think it's like, was it, was it, um, was it, uh, what's his name? I forgot his name. Uh, um, uh, Nelson Mandela that says society, society should be judged by how they treat the most, most vulnerable. And I think there's a lot of vulnerable people who are marginalized in our societies. And I think those people across history have been the one that have pushed the true meaning of what it means to have human rights and what it means to have agency, what it means to express change. And for me, what I see Afrofuturism is that is a, it's, a, it's a sort of meaning structure that allows people to have a connectivity with themselves in the world where it wasn't there before. And especially it's creative and you're thinking about the future and you're sort of reimagining what's possible. I had a talk at USC and it was specifically around Afrofuturism. And the example that I gave was like, imagine growing up in America and even me, like growing up, coming to the US when I was 13, like the, the majority of the things that you see of black people in America is like, you see a little boy who's like eight years old, or I forgot how old Tamir Rice was, who's being shot by the police in the park. Or you see like a guy selling freaking, um, what is he selling? He's selling freaking cigarettes and he gets choked to death by another police. Like if you grew up in America, like where your leaders like MLK and Malcolm X, all these people that are supposed to be dreamers of a possible world, get killed it's like and then they told you that your history starts with with slavery that's literally what this the slavery like i think afrofuturism provides a new language for people to imagine themselves outside of sort of the current frame of mm. of like what they've seen especially younger folks like it's a it's a framework of possibilities um and I think for me, my excitement is that I think a lot of science fiction and fantasy needs to bring, we need more perspective around that. And I think it's a powerful tool to imagine possible worlds and possible realities that people can dream up because everything starts with that. Movements, companies, voting. You can think of anything, deciding to travel, like waking up in the morning, like, there is an, you have to imagine and you have to make a choice. Like every great endeavor that has transformed society, whether it's leaning on the moon, required our imagination. And I think if, if this battle against people's imagination, our own imagination across the board, black, white, is, and we're sort of, our differences are being weaponized in this intense time that we're living in. Like, yeah, I think that we like we need the imagination, and I think Afrofuturism provides like a way for a lot of people to kind of reimagine what's what is possible for them and them in themselves. So I want to move into this meaning drought uh, piece, but before we do, quick uh, hot take: uh, What did you think of the Black Panther Marvel series? I liked it. I really did. I, I enjoyed that. I think Black Panther has, has definitely, like, I think a lot of the, the film business, the way it is, is that you got to always see, it's the same thing with publishing. It's like, is there a market for this industry? Is there enough eyes that is going to give us the return on investment? So it's a lot of consultants, business people that are trying to make a revenue. 
and we're seeing where the writers strike right now what's happening is that the 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 streaming wars have kind of crushed the writers income over the last like eight ten years and i think this sort of what black Panther proved is that that the idea of black stories or black ideas is not just black ideas it's like it's it, it it's a good story can resonate to a lot of people and i think black Panther redefined so much of what's possible for the industry i think that I do have a little bit of criticism on sort of the marvelization of mm. the film industry, mm. as yeah. Scorsese likes to say. And I'm going to push back against Scorsese, too. I do feel like Marvel does provide space for diverse perspectives. But I, 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 I this is going into a different topic, but uh, I want to talk about the meaning drop, too, is I feel like this sort of diversification that's happening of like original IP I don't know. I think it's great, but I feel like we could do better. We can have new stories, new worlds. Um, we can have new realities. Like I brought 10 science fiction and fantasy writers from five different African countries and partnered with this magazine called Brittle Paper. It was like a literary magazine. And we they created an entire fictional world called Salty. Uh, and perhaps you can post the link on the after notes, but Salty mm -hmm. excites me. Because it's like a uh, it's a five planet two star system that fuses African philosophy, magic, uh, technology, mysticism, futurism, and it has non humanoid species. It has and they're going about to publish their first anthology from the Southiverse, um, and that's coming out uh, from one of one of the one of the publishers that um, Silva won't be publishing, but it's, a, it's another publisher that's publishing, which I'm like so thrilled uh, and some of the art have been astounding as well so i don't know i think there is a lot of creativity that's been happening that is happening it's sort of how do we bring it to the mainstream and help people see that there there are there, there are there are new narratives that are possible i actually um want to dive into that a little bit more but i do want to come back to this meeting drought eventually because <laughs> what, what i want to dive into is um First of all, I completely agree, right? Like having these new narratives and just stop uh, stopping, you know, just as a part of the as a part of the solution, but stopping to think of it as you know we always have to be defined by this historical identity uh, helps just um, level the playing field in a way that makes it not about um, bringing all of the baggage, but instead like what can the future look like. And then on the other side, I do think it's important to acknowledge all the things that have happened in order for people to have that catharsis to be able to move on in a way that, you know, changes society in the inequalities that already exist for the better, right? So um, like what I think the first Black Panther film did well was um, kind of inspiring um, the, the hero, right? The arc of the hero um from the kind of martyr that was the villain uh played by michael b jordan um and that his history was tied to the um gang violence of compton right mm -hmm. so um you know what i want to dig in there is you know to what role and just to contextualize a little bit do we have to acknowledge publicly right in these big 
governmental ways to give that catharsis. And the example I'm thinking of is something we've mentioned on this podcast before with the cat and forest, where there was um, hundreds of thousands of uh, Polish officers that were massacred by the Russians during World War II. And that was denied by the Russian government for 40 years um, until they finally acknowledged it. And that helped actually solve a lot of the Polish-Russia um, relations because there was that acknowledgement um, moving forward. Whereas the denial or the moving past and focusing on you know, purely what's new and what can be better um, is important. I think that like it does also have a role to play. So yeah, it's kind of a long-winded way of saying, how do you feel about government's role in acknowledging these things or politicians or right leaders, thought leaders uh, in a big public way um, to move forward? Yeah, I really appreciate that question. Um, I think that Adrian, this is like incredibly like important because I think governments and politicians this i think the whole idea is around coming to terms with the past and history so i was the president of this national racial reconciliation organization called coming to the table and at the time i was the youngest person and the organization was started i think in 20 i think 20 2008 or 2006 by descendants of the enslaved and enslavers black and white people from the same slave plantation, the word descendants from the same slave plantation. And a lot of it was because the program that I studied in grad school at the Center for Justice and Peacebuilding at EMU, I studied conflict transformation. And part of it, I was trained to be a trauma sensitive like practitioner where it's like, there's this program called STAR, Strategies for Trauma Awareness and Resilience. And it was, it kind of expanded after 9-11 where a lot of the people were, were, they needed a way for religious leaders in New York to face and confront the sort of post 9-11, the trauma of where that happened. And a lot of the groups of people in STAR also started to think about, can we use the strategies for trauma awareness and resilience to look at historical trauma, how trauma is passed down throughout our history and it's passed down throughout our culture. And they created this entire framework to address historical trauma and really start to look at the truth and reconciliation processes that's happened across the world. And they wanted to do one for the US. And that's how it got started. They held a conference every four years and they started building chapters, local chapters. So I started a chapter in Virginia, Harrisburg, Virginia. And then went on the board of managers and then eventually went to lead that organization. And a lot of what I saw is that there is deep power in truth and reconciliation. There's deep power in acknowledging, especially from more leaders and creating a generation. It kind of, I look at it from like a very, like a collective consciousness mindset, a very like Jungian view of like, if our brains, for example, our individual brains, let's say there is a traumatic thing that happened in our past that we haven't dealt. We've all experienced trauma. Um, if we haven't integrated that traumatic thing, it will have a hold on us. Mm. It might cause us to, it might trigger us. It might cause us to, to 
volcanically engage a certain emotion that we don't have control over. It might pop up at any time. And it might also kind of create out of us um, humans that are less sensitive to the sort of profound values that I, I, I like told earlier in this in the podcast around beauty, love, care for the planet, and our, our human brothers and connection and curiosity. So I think that it is fundamentally crucial because if, if for example, slavery, like there hasn't been any president that has like said, okay, let's do some reparations um, around what happened to the African slaves that came to the US and who are so central to how the economy got started and like how black bodies created like this nation. And then it's just been like an entire perpetual arc of like people struggling and pushing and trying to make society better. And yes, it is better. It absolutely is better, but it could be even better if there were politicians or the leadership center was like, was kind of anchoring a basis of truth where it's saying, we acknowledge that our forefathers and our ancestors did this. And this is the evolution of the policy that caused so much harm and this is why 60% of jails in certain states are black people. This is why like black and brown children get more punished in school when there's a school to prison pipeline. Or this is the history of policing of like people of European descent literally going out to capture slaves from the plantation. So I think like I think it's extremely crucial because it's all it's I look at it from like a sort of psychic integration. If it hasn't been acknowledged, there's just going to be pockets of consciousness. Like one person's going to be like, look at the history, what happened? Another person's going to be like, no, 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 this and that didn't happen. This doesn't have an emphasis. This is not taught in school. This is not this and that. So it creates more fractured and fragmented societies when history hasn't been really addressed in that sense. So I think it's, and you see it all across. I see it in Haiti. I see it in Florida. I see it in places I lived in. I've seen it and, and even in like, I, I remember I went to Berlin and, and I was shocked by what they've been able to do to memorialize like the history of the Holocaust and how it's taught specifically in schools, how there's literally every street corner has like that, like that golden, that golden thing in the corner just saying this Jewish family was living here and they were sent to the, the, the concentration camps. And it's like, I remember I even went to France, <laughs> half of your, your native country. And it's like, and I was speaking to some intellectuals there or because I was doing it for a fellowship and they almost didn't even know that the Haitian revolution had happened, that yeah. groups of slaves from a French colony had beat out Leclerc, Napoleon's brother. And I'm like, why does nobody know about this? And it's like, we were talking more about the Vichy, Vichini, or yeah, the government Vichy, yep. Yeah, government Vichy and what happened there in that sense, the more recent stuff. But I think the challenge is that once you sort of open, I think any type of disclosure and repar and reparation and historical truth and reconciliation allows people to come to term with the trauma because it's a very restorative way of looking at justice, restorative way of looking at history which is very non-Western, it's very indigenous, certain, not all indigenous groups, but it's very indigenous. It's very, it's, it's not 
how we've conceived sort of, again, the Western canon. I'm not saying the Western canon is bad, but like when you're trying to make everybody the Western sort of frame of mind, yes, New York is great. Yes, LA is great. But there's a lot of dark side to a lot of these things. And not every city in the planet should be like New York. Not every country in the world should have this sort of democratic experiment that the U.S. has. I think they should do it within their own flavors and they should do it within their own context. And I don't think that, and I think acknowledging history is so critical to that because this is what I think not acknowledging history and when there's a government that doesn't acknowledge massive harm that's been done to a group of people, whether it's, it, whether it's indigenous folks in Australia or whether it's immigrants in Chateau Rouge or whether it's police brutality that's happening or whether it's freaking in, I would dare to say this, this comment, but even in Israel, I feel like even in Egypt as well, like I think everywhere there are groups of people that are facing violence and history we know is extremely violent. And we're just kind of, we're living these sort of cosmic threads of historical harms and we haven't been able to address them. So that's why I appreciate what your, your comment earlier is I think we, this idea of Afrofuturism or this idea of the futurism, it's like, how do we look into the past to have a better present and imagine a, a, a new future? I, I think it's, I'm not looking at it from like, uh, I'm, phys I'm a baby and I'm growing to be 12 and I'm growing to be 20, I'm going to be 30 and I'm going to be 50. I'm looking at it from a very circular framework of like, my ancestors are with me right now as I'm talking. It's kind of the Maya Angelou. I stand as, what is it? I stand, I I'm come in a room. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a different way of thinking in terms of that, but I, I totally agree. That was a long, long, long <laughs> No, but so, so yeah, I, th I think it's, it's really important. And, you know, I'm just um, thinking of people who may be listening to this and thinking to themselves, well, you know, for whatever reason, I don't agree with reparations or whatever it is. And it's like, you don't even need to think about um, the past to acknowledge that there is a, discre a discrepancy in the equal opportunity here, right? And so if we're just looking at data, um, you know, something that you mentioned before, uh, something I do in my work uh, with SmartCourse is there is a disproportionate amount on so many metrics of mental health, of the school to prison pipeline, of high school dropout rates, of XYZ that affect African-Americans more than other races, right? And so it's not even about uh, having to acknowledge. It's just also like, if you actually say that you believe in equal opportunity um, and you're looking at present day data, then you have to acknowledge that there's something wrong there and therefore it needs to be rebalanced, right? So um, yeah, I just wanted to point that out because I think it's important. Um, and I think it's really important for the history, the historical um, facts to be acknowledged and shared as well. Um, and that's partly something that we can be doing more and more of with the Bitcoin blockchain uh, which we've talked about in previous episodes. But to get back to uh, the the point that I was uh, wanting to touch on with you here is the meaning drought, right? So this is something that's affecting everybody. Uh, what is the meaning drought and why are we experiencing it right now? The meaning drought, yeah. What an intense question. Um, I really like that. 
what is the meaning drought? Like, I don't know. Like, I think it, there, there's so many different layers to that. There could be a very, I could I go on a very mystical route. Um, I can go on a very social justice route. I could go on a technological route, but I'll go on the personal route. I think that's my, that always is the most profound one. I feel like for me, it's like, is the idea of depression. It's like, why are more people depressed and lonely in the modern Western world? Um, why? And why is it if I go to a city and I was I was having a conversation with for the podcast for syllable with this uh, author, Alaya Dawson Johnson, and she's a novelist and she's written seven novels and she lives currently in New Mexico, no, Mexico City, but like in a smaller city on the edge. I forgot exactly. But we're talking about that a little bit and how like there's so much joy of people that don't have a large house or a large car or a bank account with millions of dollars. A lot of these values that we've been instilled in in terms of what it means to be successful and what it means to like live fully is to sort of accumulate all these things and pursue it and it's ingrained in, in us even as an immigrant or even as someone that grew up in middle america or the coastal cities or or even international it's that those values are becoming more and more so seeped into i think the way we live and i think that the idea of success the idea of failure the idea of education the idea of of happiness itself is so outdated <laughs> it's so outdated and it's hurting a lot of people um yeah there are definitely there definitely in the past there's been days where i'm just like i don't want to get out of bed like and and you feel this sort of heaviness in your bones and you're like you got to confront the world and you got to wake up um and i feel like that for me that example is not my fault <laughs> it's not my fault i think it's it's so it's it's almost the 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 quote by krishnamurti he's this indian mystic and he said it is no measure of health to be well adjusted in a profoundly sick society mm. um and i and i feel like that quote resonates with me so much because it's like we run so much towards the pursuit of being accepted by people or or to have those big things that have been so defined to be what it means to be well adjusted, but the entire society, there's a disease of the soul that's happening. And how do we engage this disease of the soul and modernity? Um, and I think there's something missing in the modern man, whether it's kind of like the Powerpuff Girls, salt, a sugar and everything nice like yeah this is how the modern human is designed there's something missing yeah. there's something missing and i don't know what it is maybe i do but at least maybe for myself but i feel like there is we are not perfect and those imperfections we are afraid to look at those imperfections because we're constantly envisioning ourselves from an extremist materialist vision and then we're 
cutting out magic. We're cutting out imagination. We're cutting cutting out our creative self, our capacity to fill ourselves with so much beauty and purpose. Um, I think if we're looking at the meaning drop, I think the first thing is what is this depression? Um, like what's, what, what does depression mean and why is it affecting so many people? Why is there so much suicide? Why is there an opiate epidemic? Why are some people are like doing the COVID, like the great, what is it called? The great resign or like when resignation. people are mm -hmm. you know, the great resignation, people are realizing like what they've pursued their entire lives. <laughs> it's like, it's like, why are you pursuing all these things? While there's problems like acres of football fields and a forest are being destroyed every year. Species that will never meet go extinct before they're discovered. The war in Ukraine, cities being blown up. This sort of cultural wars happening. The Trump like election that's going to be, I'm saying Trump election because I'm very, I'm, I feel like people are not taking him seriously and he might have a chance next year, but that's another uh, conversation. I don't know. I think there's a lot going on, a lot going on that people are like just absorbing and have no idea what to do. And in this sort of not knowing what to do and feeling helpless that I don't know how to solve the prison system. I don't know how to solve the war in Ukraine. I don't know how to solve conflict in the Middle East. I don't know how to solve, solve this mass migration that's happening from Latin America, from all over the place. Like, how do I stop? Like, a lot. So I think this meaning drought is this lack of agency is choking out the treasures that we are as humans. Um, I'm kind of getting a little metaphorical, but uh, but yeah, I'll say that for for now. Listen, uh, I want to go. I want to go deeper. I, I like I like uh, that. And I was gonna I was gonna ask you actually some follow up there, but I want to contextualize with my crack at at this problem, um, which is we feel stressed, anxious, depressed, and helpless when we learn that helplessness from having no internal locus of control or feeling like we don't have an internal locus of control over our current situation. So when you were saying, I don't know how to solve that, right? I don't know how to solve this or that or X, Y, and Z. It's that, right? It's, it's, we know what's happening more than ever before in the world. We have, uh, although still a much more propagandized nope. view um, in some ways, we, we also have a more objective view of what's happening. And so when you add that awareness of all the things that could be potential existential threats, psychological threats, right? Things that are fringe upon our Maslow's hierarchy of needs when it comes to like safety, belonging, right? Love, uh, friendship, and you don't give a reason for people to think that they have any control over that, then all they can think is these things are happening to me and I can't do anything about them. And to bring in that into context, right? There, there were many social experiments 
on learned helplessness. I don't remember who conducted them, but to illustrate the point briefly, these were originally done on dogs where they would put a dog in a room uh, and there was a, a small uh, wall uh, that separated the room into two and a light would go on where the dog was standing uh, on the floor where he was standing. And uh, very shortly after the floor would become electrolyzed or slightly, not in a very painful, but very uncomfortable, discomfort, uh, discomforting way, electrocute the dog. And so the dog quickly learned to hop over this little wall onto the other side of the room, right? Every time that light would go on. And then eventually they would, you know, turn the light on the other side and then it would hop over and so on. But then they turned it on on both sides. And now the dog was getting electrocuted no matter what. And eventually what happened is uh, this dog would uh, just sit there and take the pain and defecate and urinate all over itself because it had no idea what to do. And even when they turned off the light on the other side, it still didn't move afterwards because it had this learned helplessness, right? It was taught that now it no longer has any control over its situation. And so it's just going to suffer. And so I think that's really at the crux of what's happening here. Um, you know, there's so many other reasons and we can, we can dive into all of those, but at the crux of it, we're, we're human beings. We all have certain set of psychological needs. And when those needs aren't being met or we're uh, faced with certain situations that make us feel like we have zero control over our future or our current state or our needs, um, it's natural for us to learn that helplessness. And that could take the form of depression, that could take the form of anxiety, that could take any kind of these mental health conditions that we're seeing um, where we victimize ourselves um, or become victims of other forms of oppression and don't act to change that. No, I really appreciate that, that the way that you framed it. I, I totally agree. I, I would like to add as well that I think it's, I, I think for me, the way that I've seen it is that I look at consciousness as like an operating system and our operating system is outdated like human operating system, like if, if literally, if our brain is like a computer, and I know we've talked about this before, it's like Windows 95 right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's like, and everything is incentivized to keep the Windows 95 operating. And it's super glitchy, people are depressed. It's super virusy, people are angry, and our differences are being weaponized. People, and, think, and it's about to like crash, and it's like, we don't understand this sort of new consciousness that's rising, this sort of global world, this global society, this world society that's being born as a human species right now. We are very much in a very nation state model, tribalism, consciousness, black and white duality. And I think that for me, how I see the, the, the issue of our times is the imagination. I think it's a battle of the imagination. How people perceive, like, I think, I would love to read this quote. Um, I've, I'll have to find. I'll have to find this. Um, wish I had it already in place, but I want to. I want to read this quote because I felt like it, it was such an intense and powerful way of like looking at um, 
let's see if I can find it. Um, let's see. I yeah, I'm kind of like cutting the <laughs> the flow of the conversation, but I really want to I really want to read this because I feel like it's no worries. Take your time. And so I, I'd love to hear it. And, you know, in the meantime, I can say yeah, um, to, to, to move forward, right? Even though these are the things that we, these are the cards that we've been dealt with, um, I want this conversation and for anyone listening to feel like they do have an internal locus of control over the situation, right? You can do things like what Fabrice is doing. Um, to inspire other people, to make actions that um, change the world for the better, that build better societies. Um, and it's actually something I learned from Elon Musk, where people need something to look forward to. People need something that is going to inspire them to act, right? For him, it's becoming multiplanetary or creating a sustainable energy future or uh, curing all mental health issues or, you know, issues that arise in the brain with Neuralink um, or just getting rid of traffic, right? Uh, and that's why he's dedicated himself to all those. And now also with Twitter, right? Like creating x.com or the everything app that's going to take care of all these things. So everybody has their own vision. And this is something, one of the central themes of this conversation, right? Vision. And so, you know, I, I want to hear this quote, but I also want to dive into what is the role of vision and imagination for building a better future for us. Powerful. Um, so this quote is by Adrienne Marie Brown. She's an activist, uh, sci-fi writer, and she wrote a really she wrote a lot of incredible books. Um, I really look up to her and what she has to say. This one specifically from um, em, uh, called "Emergent Strategy: Shaping Change and Changing World," and she's quoting an an activist that actually I was on stage with at USC uh, is, let me say his name, I'll just, so people can go back and refer to it. Um, and I would highly recommend checking his, his, um, his, his name was looking, up, looking him up as well as, as also Adrian Marie Brown. But this is the quote, he says, uh, she's quoting him. We are in an imagination battle. Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown and Renisha McBride and so many others are dead because in some white imagination, they were dangerous. And that imagination is so respected that those who kill based on an imagined radicalized fear of Black people are rarely held accountable. Imagination has people thinking they can go from being poor to a millionaire as part of a shared American dream. Imagination turns brown bummers into terrorists and white bummers into mental illness, mental ill victims. Imagination gives us borders, gives us superiority, gives us race as an indicator of ability. I often feel I'm trapped inside someone else's imagine, someone else's capability. I often feel that I'm trapped in someone else's imagination, and I must engage my own imagination in order to break free. Mm. I wrote a book called Breaking Free from Mass Buddhist Consciousness. And I, it kind of details a lot of my personal theories on, on what can someone do to sort of break free from, I feel like, again, I feel like our consciousness has been mass produced, very in a manufacturing sense, 1984, the sort of Steve Jobs video where you saw that woman running and then she like takes the hammer and throws it at that thing. That's a lot of my energy that I feel like is happening in our planet, actually. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so I feel like for me, like we can we can dive in specifically on what can someone do to kind of heal. So I, the way that I want people to see this is I look at it from like, for me at least, I look at I look at the inner life. I feel like if you don't have a relationship with your inner life, then like that's when you need to start. Uh, and if someone's asking what is the inner life, then like <laughs> there needs to be some actions around the inner life. I think we have an inner life as humans. And I think like we have a world inside of us and it's a combination of our reflections or values or identities, who we are, all the different dimensions and multitudes of our existence, our experience, our traumas, our fears. All of this for me creates a rich ecosystem that I'm able to venture inside. And I feel like the inner life is, is I liken the inner life, the, the sort of framework of the inner life like the four seasons where it's like you have a summer where things are moving fast and growing and and like very intense you have a fall when there's like a shedding and things are 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 kind of making way for their winter where it's kind of hibernation more reflection and then the and then you have the spring when there's a blooming there's an awakening so i think the inner life kind of follows the same process and then i'm gonna tie in the operating system um, of like the computer. It's like a life cycle. Like you need to upgrade yourself every six months. I, for me, I, I am so hungry for new ideas. I'm so hungry for beauty. I'm so hungry for meaning. Because I feel like if I'm not doing those things, I feel like I'm kind of like, there's a, a decaying or death that's happening. And again, decaying and death is not bad. It's a, it's a making room for growth. Um, but I think for me, it's about engaging the symbolic structures inside of us. Like, what are the symbolic structures that no longer serve you? What are the belief systems that no longer serve you that is not promoting, like, your self-actualization? So I think a lot of sort of the depression or the mindset of, like, being in a state of being cornered is that we, we've entered sort of the biggest ice age in the history of humanity, and this ice age is inside of us. And when you're in a, in a perpetual winter, like things can't grow anymore. Crops, new ideas, new experiences, how you sense beauty, all of these things can't engage the inner life. So I think for me, the first thing that if anyone would want to live as a thriving human being, I think you have to go inside yourself and you got to be able to ask yourself tough questions. I think a way that you can do that, you can journal. I know that sounds very cliche, But like journaling every morning or every day, making space for that, I think that's a critical thing. Um, You can be in discussion groups with other people, having meaningful discussions and kind of reflecting about your life and your experiences. I think those those are important. I think reading is so, 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 so powerful. Like diving in into philosophy or diving in into um, fiction. Like I think diving into a world those provide so much space for reflection that you might not notice. But I think engaging art, engaging self-reflection, engaging those very intimate side can allow yourself to start to start to heal, to start to kind of gain control. It's like the world's living rent-free inside of you and you don't even know it because mm-hmm. it wants frozen. Um, I think for me, that's the first stage is like acknowledging that you have an inner life and then building a sort of experience to engage that inner life and to see the parts that need to grow, to see the part that you need to cut off or and bury and integrate. Like I've had to throw away certain identities that no longer serve me. Like 
like I remember when I first came to LA I was like okay I'm gonna produce music every month I'm gonna create a demo every month and I remember this identity was just absorbing so much energy because I was so, so much passionate about music and then come to fact time to think about it I realized my musician identity was not serving me at in any way like there's other identities that were like yearning and yearning to grow and yearning to thrive and that were more aligned with self-actualization with like sort of economic like survival or even creative growth entrepreneurial vision so I think a lot of the inner life is important I think other things that you can do um I feel like health is critical to a lot of that too like if you don't you're not eating well okay like this is from my own experience I remember this was in during uh the pandemic I was in DC and I literally used to run like twice a day in the morning and the evening and I think I got sunburn it was like the first time I got real sunburn <laughs> and this was in I used to run twice a day and go to the gym every other day I was like extremely active but during that point I realized that there were there were five or six things that I needed to do to get me to sort of a state of vibrancy. Like I needed to get eight hours of sleep. I needed to drink a lot of water. There are times when I'm like, I feel kind of off and I'm like, the world seems to be choking on me. And I'm like, shit, I'm dehydrated. When I need to go to the bathroom, I need to go to the bathroom. Uh, like eating greens and vegetables is extremely important. Um, resting, meditation reading a book, like there are all these five, seven different things that I needed to do. And if I don't do them, I feel more pain because feeling pain and, and to suffer is like at the backbone of being human. It's like the Buddhist sort of tradition. It's like, we are desiring beings um, and, and, and we have expectation about everything around us. And the world's always in people and communities are always going to fail this expectation because expectation comes from a place that is much more profound in the physical world. So I don't know. I think there is a lot of things that people can do, but I think the, the ultimate thing is that you have to understand your inner life, how you think, how you, what excites you in life, what makes you more curious. Um, because these things are so precious. It's like, those are the things that the world can't take away from you. Once you start to sort of, in the book, I describe it as like engaging, figuring out your own cuneiforms. Every single human being has their own cuneiform, their own alphabet, and their own, their own key to their inner life and their world. That What is those frameworks that are going to allow people to self-actualize their being and find what excites them the most? At what time of the day do they feel down? What are sort of the, the spaces that brings life or destroys you? And how do you how do you breathe power in that darkness? How do you, there's so much to self knowledge, and again, that's kind of cliche at the what is it the, at the the temple of of Adelphi at the top of it. It was like mm. know thyself. Um, I feel like that is something that is the most critical thing, knowing your inner life. But there's other things that can help facilitate because, like, who I was six months ago, I'm not the same person six months ago. By all means, I am not the same person. I might appear to be the same person, but internally, I think there's been breakthroughs. There have been a lot of thinking. There's been a lot of integration. There's been a lot of growth because I'm always sort of pursuing and trying to challenge my mind when I feel like I've like 
it's like the ideas imagine the software the software that you have when you're six years old is not the software you're going to need when you're 15 and the software when you're 15 is not going to be the software you need when you're 20 it's not going to be the software you need when you're 40 but mm -hmm. a lot of the time society wants you to have the same software like there's adults that i meet that have like the same software when they're like 20 hmm. and it's like and that's good for society right now at least the way it's incentivized it seems like if we're reduced to dust to a grain of sand and we're becoming walking corpse, it seems society is going to thrive. But I would beg to differ. I think a rich and thriving democracy needs people who have purpose and who feel more alive and are able to kind of understand the nuances of what makes them them. Them only. No, no one can ever tell you what to feel, how to think, how to exist and how to be. You have to find out for yourself and you have to be. And then that's a lot of people kind of call it the decolonization process kind of removing yourself of the world and kind of figuring out for yourself who you are and why are you different and how do you embrace your weirdness <laughs> without judgment it's not perfect it's definitely not perfect because as humans we want to be accepted we want to be loved we want we have these sort of these desires and these needs that needs to be satiated um because we are not humans by ourselves we are humans with other people um, I don't know. I, I'm rambling on now, but I, I feel like there's so much to that question of like, how do we use the imagination to embedder ourselves? I think for me, a lot of it is in the imagination. All of it is locked in the imagination. Like, it's like, what's that guy that who wrote the search for meaning? Victor uh, Frankel. Victor Frankel he was, yeah, he was a psychologist who was Jewish and went to the one of the concentration camp. And even in a concentration camp, he found freedom. Because he was like, between stimuli and reaction, he was able to kind of see where the moment I stub my toe, I'm not going to let the energy of the stubbing of the toe in the morning vanquish and overpower me for the rest of the day. So I feel shitty about everything. I don't know. I think we have so much creativity and imagination and agency as humans, but like our agency has decayed rapidly. And I think that's what's creating this meaning drought, this vision crisis. I think like all the problems of our time, especially climate, especially democracy, especially economic disparity, poverty, racial tension, all of it is, is the lack of vision. People stop believing that things can change. And people stop believing that because they don't see the magic inside themselves anymore. And it's kind of depressing into itself, that thought. So I want to, there's so many different things that I want to touch on here, but let's focus in on the personal identity piece for a second. Um, so I think like, you know, back to what we were talking about earlier with the power of story, right? The power of myths. Um, so much of the reason that people don't change uh, is because they have this sense of identity. And one of the most powerful forces of influence for our psychology is to remain consistent with our sense of identity. And so if your story is, uh, I am this person who is oppressed, uh, I am a victim, I have no internal locus of control, I have no way of getting out of this story, uh, it's very likely that you're going to stay in that story, right? It's the same with addiction, uh, which is another example that illustrates the point. If you see yourself as a smoker, um, then you will continue to be a smoker. 
if you see yourself as someone who quit smoking and is no longer a smoker, it is much easier for you to stay consistent with that sense of identity. And the way that you can differentiate between those two is people who say that they quit smoking, but say, I'm a smoker, but I'm sober, whatever, 10 days, 15 days, 30 days. If they're counting the days, it's because somewhere subconsciously or not, they're waiting for the time when they go back to their sense of identity, which is being a smoker. Whereas people who really quit and change their sense of identity don't count because there's no point in counting because it has changed. It's not them anymore, right? So um, when we bring that with what you were talking about of, of the pain that you feel and all the things that you've done to repair that pain, pain is also one of the most powerful motivators to get those breakthroughs, right? Uh, generally, it's when you have this midlife crisis or you have enough physical pain or you have enough psychological pain to push you to action. Uh, there are other ways, right? There's inspiration, um, there's discomfort, um, but pain is a really powerful one for us because it's so uh, it's so uncomfortable for us and we really want to change it. So to, to leverage pain as a, as a big motivator could also be part of your story, right? Um, and sometimes you could turn your worst day into your best day if you change the perspective of your story, right? If your worst day was when, you know, you hit rock bottom and everything started going downhill from there, then that's going to be a negative story. But if your worst day was when you realized that you needed to change for the better and you started implementing things that made your life better, then your worst day is actually your best because that was the, the catalyst that you needed to change your trajectory, to change your story, to change your identity. Um, so all of those things are really powerful psychological principles, right? That we don't learn about, that we're not taught in school. Um, and that we're definitely not talked about as solutions to these identity politics problems or these victimization problems, which are so relevant today. Um, and, that, you know, in part, it's because of what we were talking about. People don't want to let go of their pain for a lot of reasons as well, right? If, if you let go of that pain, now you have to change your identity. And that's scary, right? There's a lot of fear associated with that. Plus, you don't want to let go of that pain if you don't feel like that pain has been acknowledged, right? Especially by the people in power who, who, who have oppressed you or uh, that you hate, right? That you have so much uh, hate for because of all the pain that it has caused you. And so I think there's so many reasons to hold on to it. Um, and yet, ironically, the way to get past it is to change your story to then change the story for the macro, right? For everybody else, um, because that's what will motivate you to, to, to believe that you can do something about it. Um, and so, you know, in that vein, what role do you think storytelling has to play in shaping our collective vision of the future? <laughs> I like your setups, they're incredible. Um, uh, I think that's, it's, is it's extremely important. Um, storytelling is is key. I always say storytelling is this, is the most powerful technology that exists. We're so busy creating these AIs and blockchains and quantum computing. And don't get me wrong, those will indefinitely ch challenge and transform and engage our future and our society. But I think 
what's the most powerful thing that's going to change our society and is going to allow us to stay ahead is the story behind everything that exists in the planet. It's a war of ideas. This is what of the world that we're living in. And for me and my work with Syllable, or even my work as a writer, is that I feel words and symbols provide a sort of meta space where people are able to have a, a form of reflection, a form of knowing that maybe they've never engaged or seen before. Um, and I feel like when people are like sitting down and they're imagining like completely new worlds, like what is the society of the planet gonna look like in the year 2080? What is the society, what, if, what is a society completely made of octopuses? that lives in the guts of suns? What if there is a, a society of cats that lives in the sewers of Paris? Like what if there's a society of like, of metallic tanks, AI tanks in a planet? I don't know. I think the idea of imagining new stories, and I'm kind of taking your question a little bit in a different direction, but the idea of world building like creating new worlds like defining for yourself that everything that you imagine is okay and it's right and that i feel like there's a sort of there's a spark and i've sit, i've created hundreds of worlds thousands of worlds across my lifetime especially with syllable and i feel like there's a magic that happens when you see people are talking and discussing and saying like, this is the type of world that I want to see. I'm passionate about what, is there a world where people don't have any mental health issues anymore? Is that a utopia? And is that utopia very dystopian? Because those mental health, like you say, is suffering and pain is important to living. I think the fact of creating a world and creating a story gives people the ability to know that this physical world was created by people that are not any smarter, they're not any better, they're not any special than, than us. Yes, we sit on their shoulders. Yes, we can honor them. Yes, they were not perfect. But a lot of our current world was born out of stories and imagination whether it's the, the inventor that had this crazy idea to connect America and Europe and creating these long cords. Like, I think I was reading a book in DC and it was saying like, what are the, the seven main innovation things that changed the world forever? They talked about the Silk Road. They talked about like Genghis Khan. They talked about this guy, I forgot his name, who literally, he felt like a thousand, like he felt a lot. But eventually he connected the like the phone lines under the Atlantic Ocean from the US to Europe. And then people literally could talk. And it was like the first time someone thought it was crazy. It was, I feel like stories and the story that we tell ourselves is very, very fundamentally important in that. And I think it's a fine line as well. It's very dangerous because oftentimes the challenge for me is that a challenge is that if it revolves around the individuals, oftentimes we cannibalize or the movement or we cannibalize the potential of change happening systemically because we're like, okay, you were 
put in an extreme case. Oh, you were raped, so this is your fault. Or like this sort of, this victimhood idea. I think there's a lot to that. It's not the person's fault that they're, they feel pain and they're not able to overcome that. Mm. I think a lot of it is like, if there, there is an acknowledgement of being a product of our society. I think that acknowledgement gives people agency in saying that it's not their fault. Because oftentimes it's like when we experience trauma or we suffer, there's this sort of shame because we're not taught the language to engage pain. We're not taught the language to heal ourselves. We're not taught the language to understand other people's pain. I think we, we, it's like, or it's not manly to go to therapy. It's like, there's all these types of stories that are sort of codifying. Um, I was, I've been listening to the, some of the greatest speeches in history, or like I've been looking for speeches and I listen to them first thing in the morning to kind of get my energy going. And there's a talk by, uh, what's this guy's name? Um, Wallace, he's a writer. He wrote. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Um, he it was the, the shape of water or something like that. Something about water. Um, oh no, not that one. That one's pretty good too. Oh, David Foster Wallace. He's yes. like not, and he was talking about how like they're the tyranny of the mind and how the mind has so much control over our body or emotions or action or behaviors. And he was kind of. It was, this is going to be really weird, but it, he was making the illusion of like why in stories a lot of people just take a gun and like blow their heads. It's because like there's there's the tyran the, there's the tyranny of consciousness. How consciousness is so unbearable because it has it's that's where pain starts is in our mind. It's like the mind is like literally has a tyranny over the body, and I have a lot of pushback around that framework because it's very Western because we kind of see the world in parts very Pythagorean way of thinking of, of, our, of what the human body is and the human soul and the human imagination. I don't kind of ascribe to that, but I think it's valuable in kind of thinking about that a lot of the problems over time is locked in the mind. There's another quote I wrote down. It was, it was like by this general William McRaven and he gave her speech and he said, like, if you want to change the world, you must be your very best in the darkest moment. If you want to change the world, start singing when you're up to your neck in the mud. And that really changed my a lot of my perception. And so I, mm -hmm. I do agree with you. I do agree that people who face injustice, people who are traumatized, people that have been beat down by society, there is a moment where that suffering is going to define the rest of your destiny. Mm. And are you going to take action to overcome that pain and suffering and the trauma to take action? But for me, I'm saying this from a very privileged background. So I recognize my privilege. I recognize that even though the privilege is very complex, I'm an immigrant. English is my third language. I went to grad school. I'm living in LA. Like I have access to different a community and and space for me to kind of process a lot of these things if it if and when and it does happen to me like around pain and suffering. So I recognize that. So like I'm very wary about sort of universalizing 
sort of the stoicism of like the hostile culture of like mm-hmm. you go through pain you're gonna so i'm saying those quotes this quote by that general with a very grain of salt because i feel like pain is such an intimate thing it's like it's almost as if it's crazy it's like when i'm talking to my uncle and my uncle's telling me that yeah gangs have overrun the city of port-au-prince and that they are not even able to go outside uh, to go to the groceries because of the insecurities there or even talking to my cousin when i went back to haiti in 2016 telling me about when he went back to school after the earthquake like half of his school was gone. They all, they all died and been crushed under the rubble. Like, how does my pain in the U.S. compare to that pain in, in, in Haiti? So I, it starts to get really complex because it's like, I don't want to victim shame someone and say, well, who, who are you not to overcome your pain and your suffering? Because yeah. you are human and you can be creative. But for me, the way that I can go about doing that is I can allow people to create stories, show them that they are creative, that they can create art out of their pain, that they can be use their imagination to imagine new possibilities. It's less like a professor saying you can use your pain or you can overcome your pain. It's less like a, a person coming in and saying your pain it's like, I think for me, I feel the arts and creativity and stories are so profound because it's not like something that tells people how, what they're, what's happening in their lives. It's like, you can be in a completely fantastical world of like, like I said, cats, let's say gangster cats living in the sewers in Paris. And there's like a lot, there's like war happening between different types of cats, Sammy's cats or like the coons or different type of cat and there's like deep trauma and war that story will have i personally feel will have more impact in someone that's dealing with their pain because there's research that the facts shows there's this something called poor sociality where the human consciousness attaches itself to a character and the emotion of that character they feel they feel the same thing or even the research where you watching uh, uh, someone in a race car is the same part of the brain that's lighting up with the person in the race car themselves, this idea of mirror neurons, this sort of, we're designed for stories. And I feel for me, a lot of the solution that I feel like I'm kind of leaning on and I feel very strongly is the imagination. It it is creativity, it is storytelling. And how do we get people to see themselves as creative? How do we get people to like, see that as humans, we're not parts, we're not rocks, we're not, we're not a mind that's tyrannical to our bodies. We're not a cause and effect. Like we are like, I think Jim, Jim Carrey said it better than I wrote that there. He was like, he said, it's like, it's like my soul cannot be contained in the limits of my body. My body is contained within the limitlessness of my soul. I think just that perception, a very non-Western perception um, gives me a lot of freedom to imagine possible ways of existing outside the confines the boxes and the check boxes of what society tells me is good and what's bad so i think it's about giving people the tools to create their own destiny not necessarily telling people what the tools are it's like how if i can give people the creative tools to imagine and to tell stories and to believe that they are creative I think that of the fact will new vision will seep through them and communities will be healthier, will be more democratic. And I'll say this, 
obviously change happens across sectors. It, it's top down, it's middle out, it's, it's bottom up. And, it's, and you need to, we need more alive people, whether you're in education, whether you're studying economics, whether you're, you're a politician, whether you're an activist, whether you're an entrepreneur, a tech entrepreneur, whether you're a writer, I think everyone has, has a role to play in shaping society. But I know for sure that a lot of those sort of shift in consciousness happens in our imagination. I couldn't agree more. Really, really well said. I have two more questions for you. Um, the first is to wrap everything up here, in what ways can you see Afrofuturism, imagination, vision, inspire creative solutions to address the social, political, and environmental challenges that we face today? Absolutely. I think specifically Afrofuturism, okay, so a lot of my theories of change, I always look at it from the context that a lot of movements, there's a lot of, it's like, Poor Blacks and poor Whites, their destinies are inextricably tied. But society tells us otherwise. Our differences are weaponized. And it seems that that's the, sort of the same colonial way, how the French did it, or how the British did it, how the Spain did it. They go in a community and they divide and they conquer. Through chaos, a status quo can be maintained. It seems as the same patterns, it seems that's inherent in humanity and how we do things. And for me, I've always looked at how change happens. It's about coalition building. It's about people coming from across sectors. It's about minds coming together to imagine. The civil rights movement could not have been possible if it wasn't a sort of a marriage between the people who are hungry for change, if it wasn't for the media that, that was observing what was happening to define sort of the consciousness there, if it wasn't the younger generation, if it wasn't the writers telling stories, if it wasn't all these, the, the sports athletes. So it, it takes people to create change. It takes people to imagine change. So I feel for me, Afrofuturism is the movement of our times. And I feel like, it has the power, I think it out of a lot of different types of movements has the greatest power to bridge the gap of black and brown and white and Spanish and indigenous people to imagine and celebrate diversity in a creative way, in a, in a way that, they, that was not available to them in any other way. It gives people a template to reimagine how they see themselves in time and space. And I think for me, that makes for a healthier society, a, a more creative human being, or more a, a, a human being that's more alive, where their hearts is pumping, where their bodies are dancing, where their minds have built a level of resilience to be able to kind of cope with their own pain and suffering. This is at the crux of democracy. Because people have agency. This democratic experiment, what we're trying to do right now, what we've tried to do is not perfect. It's evolving, it's changing, it's being co-opted and, and there's a lot of divisions. I think by the fact of having a mythology such as 
Afrofuturism, the mythology of Afrofuturism can bring people together because we live in shared stories. We become closer when we root, we live in similar stories. Like because you're a Star Wars fan and I'm a Star Wars fan, we're closer together. We're, we're closer together because we're both fans of Star Wars, of the force of Luke Skywalker. We're closer together because we both watch Black Panther. The power of storytelling and mythologies are so critical. And I think Afrofuturism is a powerful movement that, that is rising that can help sort of codify an identity for a whole lot of people around the planet in this new world society that's engaged. Because a lot of people wants to maintain this sort of world, uh, sort of nation state model, which I know is very young from the, the state, the Westphalia and kind of that imagination that happened and kind of how do we craft the societies to engage. We need our checks and balances and we need a nation and we need people. But I think right now with technology, with AI, with this hyper-connectivity and this nihilism, because we don't have a broad mythology that's kind of connecting us as humans, I think Afrofuturism can do that. And by that fact that it resonates to a lot of Black people especially, it's going to bring more empowered, creative Black people to participate and co-create this sort of world society. And not just Black people, because it's like, you look at jazz, you look at hip hop, you look at so much of culture is rooted in, in Blackness. And I feel like Afrofuturism can be in an, a powerful force, like a powerful, it is a powerful force. And we haven't even seen how it's gonna rise. I think there's a lot of different movements, but I think specifically Afrofuturism can provide this sort of a, a connectivity people, of people across borders. Like I remember with the Black Lives Matter movement, when like, I was shocked when I read that after I think, I, I, I think after uh, George Floyd died, there were protests in over 400 cities around the world, even in the Netherlands and Finland and China, like what? In Chile, in all continents, people were protesting like, this is the type of world we're moving into. And we have no fucking, excuse my language, we have no idea what that means for us as a species. Yes, as a science, as myself, as a science fiction writer, I, I feel like people have imagined what that looks like. But like, on, when it comes to like the rubber hitting the road, we don't know what it, like, to solve COVID, we needed every country to participate. We have issues right now that are rising that needs not only multi-sectoral, but that needs multinational engagement like the whole thing with COVID that happened like could literally have been solved in less than six months people were hiding information research wasn't properly done there was like vitriolic fake news happening like there's so much of what we can't do by ourselves anymore so we're entering in an incredible era of humanity right now that nobody knows what's going to happen but what I know is that creativity, shared mythology, this understanding of humans as a holistic being, not as parts, this idea that healing ourselves, storytelling is at the foundation of that. I think I dream of a future where writers wake up, creators wake up, and they're not going to work by themselves. They're working in collectives. 
and they're imagining new fictional world. That is sort of the vision of Syllabus. I feel like the writers of the future are not going to wake up and think that they're going to write by themselves. Like I woke up one day and I was like, I want to be a writer and, and I'm I was going to go about myself, but it's going to be a natural thing for people to be like, wow, I want to work in this fictional world with other people. Like, and that's kind of the design of the societies that I'm trying to kind of create at Syllabus as a publisher is that I want to tell stories from people that haven't been sort of told before. And, and I feel Afrofuturism is something that one of my, our core values at Syllable. And so, and it's something that I feel like I'm, I'm ex really excited for. Um, I'm very, very excited for that. This is, wow. You know, like, damn, well said uh, so much. Uh, couldn't think of a better way to close out, to put a bow on everything. What are the top three lessons that you want listeners to keep in mind moving forward? Why is understanding the concepts of this conversation so important for our globe, for global geopolitics, for societies? And what do you think it says about humanity? I'll say this. I think it was Salma Altman that said like in 10 years, like humans are going to be outdated. <laughs> mm. I think so too. And I think we're going to be outdated because so much of the way our design of society asks of us to be walking corpse. And I think three lessons that I want people to get out of this is I feel like, I, I feel like make, make time for beauty in your life. Really, really make time for beauty. And I don't know how that manifests. I don't know what type of job you're working. I don't know what you're dealing with in your your existence i don't know if you're in, in civil war i don't know if you're in a neighborhood in beverly hills i don't know if you're in a cushy job and you hate your life i'm not sure what it is i want to implore you make time for beauty whether it's literally just going to a museum whether it's consuming great films whether it's having meaningful conversation I feel like beauty is so part of kind of, it's kind of like the wine of the soul. Mm. The for the That's soul. a great quote. I like that. <laughs> it's literally a wine for the soul. And I feel like that's going to wake up this inner life of people. I mean, that's the one thing. I think second, I would say, listen to the voice of the marginalized. Listen to the voice of the marginalized. I think, I think, innovation and change um the growth of societies is going to come from the maladjusted <laughs> the people who have been crushed and pushed not of their own doing or of their own doing i think their voices are so 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 important and i think this party that's happening that is afrofuturism this sort of vision quest that Afrofuturism is has created out of us that we're seeking, I think is critical. Be very watchful of Afrofuturism. Whenever you see it, take time to kind of listen and see. Um, and I think the last thing is I feel like I don't know. I I don't know. I feel like just be hungry for ideas, like be comfortable with change. 
change is i feel like people are not comfortable with change like you said it's like the whole thing that happened where it's like the whole thing that happened let's say for in america it's like the jobs in the in the rust belt went to china because we pushed so much of globalization and interconnectivity and in people's entire worldview it was like her people in the entire worldview were like this is a job town the mining like this is my parents parents have done this their entire worldview was that and it, it was gone and then now they have someone that comes in and says hey, let's bring it back to the good old days where you had jobs, where your children were not suffocating and dying of opiates. Hell yeah, I'm going to go and pursue that like to the good old times. But I think the reason this is happening is because it's it, we created a sort of, we created an operating software for consciousness, a template for imagination that was so one-sided, that is so... So it's like, be comfortable with change. Like a challenge for everyone listening, I would tell them like, find a way to change every week. Like find a way to like profoundly change your perception on the world every week. Whether it's consuming a book, whether it's traveling, whether it's talking to someone, whether we're watching a documentary, whether it's journaling, whether it's going into psychedelics, like do, what something that is going to profoundly change your perspective because i feel like that is where innovation happens this is where healing happens this is where the purpose seeps in is that when we're curious about the world and ourselves and allow ourselves to be comfortable with change i think i think octavia butler said it best it's like change is god i think if we start to kind of connect with that change i think the future can start to be born through us we start to anchor I would say also people look, there's a manifesto that I wrote, I'll do a shout out for my, I run a podcast, it's on the future specifically. And I wrote a, a, a manifesto that kind of could have 10 big ideas that I feel like are important for the future. You can post that in the show notes. But yeah, I feel like consume beauty. Um, what was it again? Consume beauty, uh, be comfortable with the marginalized and be comfortable with change. Great, yeah, great yes, three yeah. lessons. <laughs> Sit to the marginalized and be comfortable with change. Yes. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Uh, Fabrice, thank you so much for taking part in this interview. You shared so much value for our audience. Where can people get in touch with you or follow your work? Yeah, I am in on Twitter. So it's my last name, Gelier Fabrice, G-U-E-R-I-E-R-F-A-B-R-I-C-E. Uh, my email is Fabrice at syllable.com, S-Y-L-L-B-L-E.com. Shoot me an email. I'm happy to respond. Happy to be in conversation with people. Um, yeah, and, and my personal site is my first name and last name. I'm sure it's going to be below on the YouTube uh, process. But it, this has been such a delight and pleasure. And thank you for, I, I, I interview a lot of people. So this is like really cool to be on the other side. It's kind of weird and funky. But yeah. I appreciate all the questions, your thoughtfulness. I appreciate the space that you're creating for stories like this and kind of canonize like new meaning. It was it the the French way it's like the clash des idées fait jaillir la lumière. Mm. Uh, the ideas create more light. So I feel like this is great. Um, so thank you. <laughs> awesome. No, this was uh, this was really really uh, great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. 
Thanks again for all of our listeners. Be sure to follow up with Fabrice Guerrier. We spent months vetting these speakers because we knew they'd be really valuable to you. So definitely check them out and follow what they're up to. Until then, be better, build better, listen to the marginalized, get out there and get change. Uh, we'll see you in the next one. Yeah.